Welcome to The Wrap, a weekly podcast covering women's sports news. My name is Chloe Dalton. I'm an Olympic gold medalist, medalist in rugby sevens and I play AFLW for the GWS Giants every week on the show. I'm joined by my co-host Bez, who is all things women's sport, rugby, women's rugby, chief researcher, chief app. I cannot talk properly this morning. Queen of merchandise, please help me, Bez. Well, you can really just say my name. I'm unsure you need to like rattle off a list of made up accomplishments. But anyway, play on, taking a look around the grounds. Madison D. Rosario named Paralympian of the Year in 2020. Jess Fox wins gold in the K1 World Cup event in Prague. And we've said it before and we'll say it again, Sam Kerr needs to invest in a bigger trophy cabinet. For our key story, we'll discuss the Australian women's cricket superstars who are earning just 10% of the contract value of their male counterparts. It's just, it's just the GST. Yeah, do they actually just earn the goods and services tax on the men's? Wowee, that's a good way to look at it, isn't it? This podcast drops every Tuesday morning at 6am, so make sure you hit subscribe, give us a review, and if you want to get it in your inbox as an email newsletter to read with your morning coffee, uh, the link will be in the show notes so you can subscribe to that one as well. Let's take a look around the grounds. In cycling, it was a matter of so close yet so far for Aussie road cyclist Grace Brown. Brown is a top-rated Aussie rider, man or woman, in the UCI World Rankings, and on the weekend, she was pipped in the final stage to finish just one second behind Italian star Alyssa Longo Borgini in the prestigious women's tour. After five stages, Brown started the sixth and final stage of the week-long 720-kilometer race in Britain in the leader's jersey. It's a really long way. Oof, that's what cars are for. So she started in the leader's jersey but was equal in t- on time with the Italian winner. Brown was looking confident in the first half of the final stage, and when she picked up three bonus seconds for winning an intermediate sprint, the tour win seemed in the bag. But it was a sprint finish, and Longo Borgini was rewarded for her attacking intent over the final kilometre. She fought hard to take third place behind stage winner Lorena Weebies, and that third place earned her a four-second bonus to snatch a one-second win after more than 19 and a quarter hours of riding over in six days. Well, over six days. Oh, okay. Still a lot. So 19 hours and 15 minutes of riding and you lose by one second. Oh, that is really hard. Oof. It was such a close finish that Brown's FDJ teammates thought she'd won after they crossed the line, only to learn that as Longo Borgini had finished third, the Trek rider had done enough. Um, Brown crossed the line in 12th and was disappointed in missing out on an opportunity to take home her first ever multi-stage race. She said after the race, I took the first intermediate sprint and that put me three seconds ahead. We thought that we were pretty safe for the final as long as there were no gaps, but it was really messy and Trek did an amazing lead out to put Alyssa in a really good position ahead of the corners. Um, Brown's Aussie compatriot, Team Bike Exchange, Jayco's Alexandra Manley, also completed a fine week's work, finishing fourth overall, just 24 seconds behind the winner. The UCI World Tour next moves to Italy when the Giro d'Italia Doni begins on the 30th of June. The 10-stage race will be followed by the return of the Women's Tour de France, which will be held from July 24th to 31st, and I cannot wait for that. How good. I love watching these multi-stage races. It's like you're on holidays as well. Yeah, you just like take a trip through the French countryside. The Tour de France (laughs) coverage does it best. (laughs) It's so good. In Parasports, Madison Di Rosario was recognised at the Paralympics Australia Awards for her incredible Tokyo Games performance where she won the marathon, T54, and 800 metres in the T53 and took bronze in the 1500 metres in the T54. 
Tokyo was her fourth Paralympics, and although she was a three-time world champion, Olympic gold had eluded her up until that point. She established herself as a global superstar of wheelchair racing at Tokyo and followed that up with victory in the famous New York Marathon in November last year. She becomes the fifth woman to be named Paralympian of the Year since the prize was established in 1994. The inaugural winner was wheelchair racing legend Louise Savage, who also won in 1996 and 1998. Savage now coaches Di Rosario and was awarded coach of the year for her outstanding guidance of the track champion. Pretty cool full circle for Louise Savage to go from winning the award multiple times, being the inaugural winner and then winning it as a coach for your athlete who is just a boss. Serious boss. Madison spoke about the opportunities that the Paralympics provide, saying the Paralympics is the largest platform for people with disabilities and you want to do everything that you can with that platform. That is one of the incredible things that comes with being part of this Paralympic team. We prioritise the Paralympic movement and the impact it's had on the 20% of Australians with disabilities is unreal. Honestly, it's a privilege to be part of that. The Team of the Year award was won by the Women's Table Tennis Class 910, which consisted of Lena Lay, Quinn Yang and Melissa Tapper. Melissa Tapper featured on Season 2 of the TFAT podcast. If you haven't listened to that one, Millie Tapper, check it out. The trio won silver in Tokyo, contributing to by far the most successful Australian para-table tennis campaign in Paralympic history. Millie Tapper was also keen to highlight the deserved attention that the movement has received, saying it's the first time that we've come to the forefront and the light has really been shone on us. To win this award is really exciting. We were just lucky to compete and we did awesome as a team. To walk away with a silver medal from Tokyo was a dream come true, but to do it as a team is even more special. Yeah, and look, some of that light that Millie's referring to there was an effort and, you know, a bit of a blow your horn situation here, friend, but a bit of an effort from the Female Athlete Project that still, for me, brings goosebumps when I think about it. The Tokyo Paralympics, personally, a really special time for a lot of reasons, and I think much of Australia. The fact that, you know, we're all in some form of lockdown pretty much all over the world, and the Paralympics really brought seriously pure joy into our lounge rooms. Um, it was during the games that TFAP came to learn that Australia's medal winners who won a medal in Tokyo were set to receive $0 as a reward for their achievements. In comparison, the Australian Olympians in Tokyo received 20000 for gold, 15000 for silver and 10000 for bronze. Um, you were quick to jump on that. GoFundMe page was set up. Some excellent T-shirts were designed, um, which I'm wearing one right now. Amazing. On purpose. Convenient. Convenient. I mean, let's be honest, most of my wardrobe is TFAP gear, so it's not hard. <laughs> As it should be. But yeah, look, I think overall the noise that was made during the Paralympics was really just so refreshing to be able to get behind a campaign that was started by you and that was finished when on the 2nd of September, former Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced the government will boost funding to Paralympics, meaning medalists at the Paralympics receive the same cash. So Chloe raised a whole heap of money um, along with TFAP, which was distributed equally to athletes, and they also got the same medal bonuses. So exceptional work done by your friend. By the whole team here. And I think um, cool recently to work with Paralympics Australia to actually distribute that money that we raised from the GoFundMe. So I think each of the athletes got about $1,400 from all of the incredible people who donated to that campaign, which was really cool. And bought t-shirts. And bought t-shirts. And I think one of the biggest things, it was, for me, it was probably one of the first causes that I've been involved with at this level. It was really refreshing to see that people sharing social media posts can actually 
make a change. That was my favourite part of yeah. the whole thing. I mean, you ended up obviously on ABC Breakfast, um, doing a fair bit of other media about it, and it was all just a groundswell of support through through the social media, and it was awesome to see. Back to the awards, seven-time Paralympian and Australian Paralympic summer team co-captain Danny DeToro was presented the President's Award for Excellence in Sportsmanship. The award, chosen by the PA president, Jock O'Callaghan, recognises the member of an Australian Paralympic team who is an outstanding example of respect, honour, fairness, modesty and integrity. Five pretty cool words to be described by. Beijing 2022 co-captain Melissa Perrine and her guide Bobby Kelly took out the 2022 Female Athlete of the Year Award for their performance at Perrine's fourth and final Winter Paralympics. The awards also featured the induction of five new members to the Paralympics Australia Hall of Fame. On this podcast and at TFAT, we often only shine light on female athletes, but I mean, when Kurt Fernley's involved, you've got to give him a bit of a shout out. He's an iconic Australian athlete, isn't he? Um, so the five inductees were nine-time gold medalist in shooting, Libby Kosmala, who competed at a record 12 Paralympics between 1972 and 2016. Oof, that's even before I was born. Wow, we're going back. <laughs> 13-time Paralympic medalist Kurt Fernley, who competed in wheelchair racing at five Paralympic Games between 2000 and 2016. Three-time Paralympian and nine-time gold medal winning swimmer Priya Cooper. Swimmer Matthew Cowdery, who, with 13 Paralympic gold medals and 23 medals, is Australia's all-time leading Paralympic Games medal winner. And finally, Alpine ski racing great Michael Milton, who won six gold, three silver and two bronze medals to become Australia's greatest Paralympic winter athlete. Amazing. Some impressive resumes. Congratulations to all of those outstanding athletes. In netball, the finals picture while we record this is still not clear as we await the final game of the round on Monday, well today, Monday, when we're recording, between Collingwood and the Melbourne Vixens. But on Saturday, the Giants secured a home minor semi-final as they beat Sunshine Coast Lightning 68 to 65 and locked in third on the ladder. Go the Giants. Thank you. Looking to go one better following their four-goal loss to the New South Wales Swifts in last season's championship decider, Giants coach Julie Fitzgerald praised the way her squad bounced back from COVID outbreaks and three losses in their opening four games to return to the finals. They were looking a bit shaky there for a while, weren't they? Mm-hmm. She said after the match, it has been a really big season and I think we've been through a lot in this season. So to finish third, we're very, very happy with it. It means the world to us. Well, you spoke recently to Julie as part of your Giant In Their Field podcast. What impressed you the most about the Giants coach? She's the most experienced coach in Australian netball. One of my favourite chats with her was her talk about culture. She talked about you can only create culture once and she was the inaugural coach at the Swifts and the Giants. Um, so she's done a pretty incredible job. She's coached amazing athletes over her time, but I loved the different elements that she talked about, about what actually contributes to a successful team culture. And one of my favorite things about the sports podcasts that I do is that so much of that actually can translate into business and into the workplace as well. Yeah, nice. Sunday afternoon's game saw the New South Wales Swifts host the Queensland Firebirds. Both teams went into the game with finals aspirations, but it was the Swifts who took the victory in a tough battle to the end at Ken Roosevelt Arena. The Swiss were without coach Bryony Ackle, defender Tegan O'Shaughnessy and midcourter Taylor Fraser because of COVID-19. They lost them all within like 24 hours too. The Swiss, I've got a big shout out here to whoever runs the Swiss Twitter. It's 
funny. They're, it's clever, isn't it's, it? It is on point. I love it. Um, they shared some pretty funny chat around that, like, oh, it's been a great year, <laughs> real sarcastically. Anyway, they got the job done. Um, they won 63 to 61. The margin was not quite enough to dislodge the Collingwood Magpies from fourth spot, but the equation is now simple. Collingwood need to win today against the first place Vixens. If they lose, they can still qualify for the finals in fourth, provided they lose by two goals or less. It's all to play for in the Melbourne Derby. So Swifts are hoping that Collingwood lose by more than two goals. Yes. Mm, Interesting. And they're playing the Vixens. What's your bet? I'm saying Vixens by three. I'm saying Collingwood by one. Interesting. Which upsets me because Collingwood. Mm. But the Vixens are already secured first. Yeah, true. They might be resting some players. They might just be filthy about not being able to host a grand final. They could be angry. <laughs> they could be angry about it and come out and put on a good game. I like that theory. In soccer, Matildas and Chelsea striker Sam Kerr both achieved a notable double last week when she was named Player of the Year by England's Professional Football Association after she'd also won the corresponding award from sports writers. The size of Kerr's trophy cabinet has been debated on this podcast before, but given this season, she has won the Golden Boot as the Women's Super League top scorer and voted Player of the Year by the Football Writers Association. To go with the multiple trophies Chelsea has won, it's safe to say the cabinet does need to be bigger. There's no debate. Sam, if you're listening, get a bigger one. Sam was thrilled to learn that she had been saluted by her fellow players as the most recent award was voted on by the players. Kerr said, it's a massive honour, I think, whenever you're voted by your peers. I think that's the highest honour as a player, so it's an amazing feeling. I think as an athlete, you, that's always the one you, you hold the most high. Absolutely. The Players Player Award is always, for me, the one with the biggest kudos. Because it has to mean that you're talented but also not a dickhead. Yeah. Good on and off the field. It's really important to be a good teammate, kids. Well, life lessons here with Bez. <laughs> The UK award comes just two weeks after Kerr won the equivalent PFA award in Australia. Kerr is enjoying some downtime at home in Perth for the first time in over two years. She'll enjoy some much needed rest after not being selected in the Matildas squad, which will face Spain in Spain on June 26th. This friendly will be followed by a match against Portugal three days later in Portugal. The squad features 14 members that defeated New Zealand in April, but there are a number of big names who've been given a rest, including Kerr, Steph Catley and Kaya Simon. Defender Ellie Carpenter will also be missing after suffering an ACL injury in the UEFA Champions League final. Coach Tony Gustafsson will be looking to the less experienced members of the squad to stake their claim for the upcoming World Cup over the course of June international window. In Rugby Union, the Wallaroos haven't had the happiest start to their Pacific Four series, suffering two losses in their opening matches. Game one saw the Aussies take on the New Zealand Black Ferns in hideous conditions. It was teeming. The mm. rain was constant and heavy, and the quality of the game suffered as a result. The Wallaroos deservedly led 10-5 at halftime, and they matched the world number two team for 60 minutes, but the Ferns found another gear in the final quarter of the match and finished 23-10 victors. Do you think that... A dry game would have suited the Wallaroos better? Um, that's a good question. I think, yes, in regards to our set piece. Mm-hmm. I think our set piece. Scrums and lineouts, for those who don't know. I think the scrums in particular found that they're on skates. Yeah. Um, so that may have helped. 
Yeah, it's a good question. It's a good hypothetical that I hadn't really thought of. Great. Thanks for that. On to the next. The second match was played on Sunday against a USA team that had welcomed a number of players back from English Premiership duty during the week. It was the old game of two halves with a pretty substantial breeze in play. The US used the wind in the first half and starved the Wallaroos of possession and territory, going to the halftime break 13-0 up. Arabella McKenzie came on eight minutes into the second half and her exceptional kicking game immediately paid dividends. Bella crushed a 50-22 to give the Wallaroos field position that led to a try from one of the Aussies' best on the day, Georgina Fredericks. A try from a rolling ball to hooker Ash Masters on the 70th minute converted by Laurie Kramer left the Wallaroos down by only two with 10 to play. Getting exciting on the couch. And they had one last chance after another booming kick from McKenzie handed them a line out in their attacking 22. But the Wallaroos couldn't secure the line out and another victory unfortunately went begging. The US held on to win 16-14 and the Wallaroos will need to regroup quickly to get something out of this tour. The Aussies will face world number three Canada on Saturday in their final match of the Pacific Four tournament. In paddling, Jess Fox celebrated her 28th birthday in Prague at the opening round of the ICF Canoe Slalom World Cup with a gold medal in the K1 event. She did it the hard way after smashing gate two on the course, but the paddle goat. (laughs) (laughs) Can we do a little picture of a goat in a kayak? Bailey, producer Bailey, can you? Put a goat in a kayak. Please. please. Thank you. Please and thank you. Um, She was good enough to work. With its little hooves on the paddle. (laughs) Oh, Oh, wow. Wow. (laughs) Wow, wow, wow. Where am I even up to? No one knows. Goats and kayaks. Great. The paddle goat. <laughs> we're never. No, we're we never are. getting through this. Go. <clears throat> the paddle goat was good enough to work some magic down the rest of the course and make up for the two second penalty. She said after the race, I told myself to have a good start, be safe. And straight away, I smashed gate two. From there, I just had to try and lift and push. And I made a little mistake in the middle, but I had an excellent bottom and I really gave it everything at the finish line and I'm still puffed. I love um, sports like this where if you make a mistake early, the mental fortitude that you need to bounce back and not let it derail the rest of your run. If it, yeah, if that gets in your head, you're going to miss gate after gate. Yeah. The victory meant a lot to Fox after missing gold and winning bronze in the K1 at the Tokyo Olympics and then missing the final altogether at last year's ICF World Championships. She really wanted to get back to the top. It was challenging, she said, with the World Championships and with the Olympics winning bronze, but I won the overall World Cup title last year in the kayak, so I knew it was there. I just had to pull it out in those runs. To do that today was awesome. I felt really good and really happy with how I delivered after that early mistake. She beat German world champion Elena Lillig and France's Camille Prient and declined some birthday cake until after the C1, an extreme kayak trial events, which took place on Sunday night. Unfortunately, the second day of competition for Fox wasn't quite as successful. She failed to make the semifinals in the C1 and the extreme kayak, but was loudly cheering on her sister, Noemi Fox, who made the final in the extreme event, finishing in an impressive fourth place. Can you talk us through this extreme kayak event? It's my new favorite sport, I think. It's extreme. It's amazing. So four people in their kayaks. They launch off like a yeah. They have a big drop, an elevated thing, like like BMX. You know, yes. see the start. BMX. It's like a BMX start. Mm. It's kind of like BMX on water. That's cool. Four people belting down the churning water, getting around gates, paddling as fast as they can. There's a roll in there. Amazing. Like roll the kayak on purpose. 
When do they have to roll? Is it do it any time you want? Is or there's a, a big floating or big suspended yellow boom that's like says roll zone. And so do you have to do it within a- Yeah, I'd say so. Okay. Let's take a look at the key story. In cricket. So normally when we share numbers relating to base and average salaries in female sport, cricket is more often than not at the top of the list. But a recent article highlighting the difference between what Australian cricket pay our best cricketers with some pretty confronting reading. Superstars Meg Lanning, Elise Perry and Alyssa Healy earn just 10% of their male counterparts. In fact, the captain of the men's team, Pat Cummins, has a $1.8 million contract as the top-ranked men's cricketer, while Lanning, Perry and Healy are on contracts worth around $150,000 to play for their country. Cummins' $200,000 captaincy bonus alone is worth more than any playing contract for a female representing Australia. And even the number 20 lowest ranked national men's contracted player is on $316,000, which is double that of the top women. I think what a really disappointing part of this story is, as you said, whenever we talk about pay in sports, cricket is kind of the shining light. And I think they've done an exceptional job with their PR at maintaining that image. But when you see these numbers, I, th- I think that's probably the most accurate comparison, the fact that the lowest ranked men's player is on about double or more than double, is it? Yeah, like that in itself, if you look at what these female players have done for the game, they don't just go out there and play exceptional cricket. They actually have a role in changing people's attitudes about cricket, bringing new fans to the game, getting women on board, 50% of the population, to watch the sport. So I think that's where they really have missed out on the value that these players bring. Um, uh, Cricket Australia Chief Executive Nick Hockley acknowledges the issue and declared the game is determined to address the disparity. He said, whilst we are extremely proud of the progress in both playing opportunities and earning potential of our elite women cricketers, there is much more to do. Our investment has helped in WBBL becoming the world's leading female domestic cricket competition incredible success by our national team, a record-breaking ICC Women's T20 World Cup in 2020, an expansion of our 50-over WNCL competition. We remain laser-focused on accelerating the momentum and increasing opportunities and earnings for our female players. Cricket Australia was quick to note that the $150,000 figure doesn't represent total earnings for the women. Top female cricketers do earn additional funds from Cricket Australia marketing contracts plus their WBBL deals. But so do the men. Cummins' $1.8 million salary does not include his captaincy bonus or marketing contract. Lanning, Perry and Healy potentially can earn around the $300,000 to $500,000 mark with marketing bonuses and WBBL money added in. But the point here is the disparity in the playing contracts between the male and female players. This also means that the less well-known Australian female players who don't feature in marketing campaigns as regularly as the big names are only earning the base amount. There are calls to double the central playing contracts for the Australian women during next year's MOU pay deal. Strong TV ratings and commercial interest from major sponsors like Commonwealth Bank who only want to be associated with women's cricket. A direct reflections of the team's success and popularity and the fact Cricket Australia has invested well to this point. And there's no, there's no debating that. The investment from CA has resulted in Australia being well ahead of most cricketing nations. Australian Cricketers Association boss Todd Greenberg acknowledged the struggles in getting enough competition for our world champions, saying, despite the best endeavours from Cricket Australia, this summer our Australian men play 22 white ball games and five tests before our women play a game on home soil. 
Our women cricketers have been part of the same MOU as our men for five years now, but disparities between the treatment of the women's and men's team remain. The game has done well to keep international competition in set windows so women can contest the WBBL, the England 100, and soon the women's IPL in India and maximise their earning potential with overseas freelance dollars. I think overall we can agree that the current contract pay gap is just not acceptable from Cricket Australia. And it's always back to this idea about the current players being grateful of being part of this generation that's pioneering and paving the way, which does allow them to be well-paid full-time professionals. There is still a really long way to go to reach a contract offering that looks anything like equality at, at a minimum. Those superstars have to be getting paid more than the lowest ranked men's players. Absolutely. Still on our key story, we might look at a pretty cool story that's come out of Canada in the soccer bears. Yeah. So in more joint pay action, the Canadian men's soccer team last week cancelled a World Cup warm-up match against Panama after the team refused to play because of a labour dispute with the nation's governing body. That dispute included a demand the women's national team get equal match fees. The men released a statement with a number of demands, including 40% of World Cup prize money, a friends and family travel package, and an equitable structure with our women's national team that shares the same player match fees, percentage of prize money earned at our respective FIFA World Cups, and the development of a women's domestic league. It like blows your mind seeing that stuff, doesn't it? It's so cool. And we talked a couple of weeks ago um, about what had happened in the US with the women's national team and the way the men had got on board in a way with those negotiations and whether other countries were going to follow suit. So it's pretty cool to see that Canada, just around the corner, their men's team have stood up and said they've actually like refused to play a game. Pretty cool. Um, the Canada women's team is ranked six in the world and they won the gold medal at Tokyo Olympics. The Canadian women's team, who are also negotiating their contract with Canada Soccer, said in a statement, it will not accept an agreement that does not offer equal pay with the men's team. Like the men, the women's team is asking Canada Soccer to give its players more information about its financial situation, particularly regarding its agreement with Canada Soccer Business, an entity launched in 2018 to run the country's top domestic league and handle Canada Soccer's commercial rights and corporate partnerships. I think this also speaks to a, um, a rising power in you know, player associations. Mm -hmm. This is not the first time we've had, you know, a a union or, you know, a a group, a a playing group ask for their governing body to be transparent with the finances. And I think that's great. I think that the players absolutely deserve to know what the financial position, true financial position of the organisation is, and therefore they can make an informed decision on, you know, what they want to claim in, in regards to salaries. Yeah, and I think on that example, what's great about these two teams in terms of Canada and the US women's national teams is they're very successful teams. Like you look, Olympic gold medal, the US team being world champions, like they are successful teams who have an exceptional following and are are really marketable as a team and as individual athletes as well. Look, I assume a lot of them play in the um, US competition. Surprising they don't have a domestic league at all. Yeah, it is, isn't it? I mean, Canada is right there. Like I think 90% of Canada's population live within like a hundred kilometers of the border. (laughs) Just like looking over there. Hello. Hey, what are you guys doing? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Current national team star Alfonso Davies has no doubt about what he and his team mates need to address as part of the new agreement, saying, 
The women are a good team. They went to the Olympics and won the Olympics. It's fair to them and us as well to split equally. Thank you, Alfonso. Well done, Alfonso. Maybe a call to some of the men's cricketers. Perhaps. Mm. Let's take a look at what to watch. In surfing, the world tour has moved to El Salvador with heats due to start today, Tuesday, for the Surf City El Salvador Pro. Unfortunately, Aussie Tyler Wright won't be competing after picking up COVID in Indonesia and making the decision to stay in Australia to recover. Um, Pretty understandable given her long fight with illness just a few years ago after contracting Influenza A. Um, If you haven't listened to the Tyler Wright podcast, season one, no, sorry, for start of season two of the TFAT podcast, go check it out. You can tune into the surfing on the Seven Network, Foxtel and the WSL app to cheer on Aussies Steph Gilmore, Isabella Nichols and Sally Fitzgibbons who will be looking to carve up the long right-hand point breaks. Yeah. There is more sand adjacent slash beach sport action taking place in Rome with the Beach Volleyball World Championships currently being played. The two Australian teams had mixed results on day one with Tokyo silver medalist Taliqua Clancy and Maria Faye Artacho de Sola winning their match. But Georgia Johnson and Alicia Stevens failing to a strong, falling to a strong Canadian pair. Clancy and Desola won their second match and are looking the goods. The pool matches continue today before finals start on Wednesday. You can watch live on volleyballworld.tv and keep up to date by the Volleyball Australia social media channels. And the 19th FINA World Swimming Championships beginning in Budapest on Saturday, the 18th of June. The event will run for eight days and be broadcast live and free on Nine Gem and Nine Now. And it is Suncorp Super Netball finals time this weekend. Schedule hasn't quite been released because we're recording before the last game of the round, but be sure to jump online. I believe the two semifinals will be on Saturday and Sunday. And we'll have you covered in the weekly newsletter. Absolutely. tomorrow morning. And that's the wrap. That's the wrap. See you next week, friend. See you then, goat. (laughs) 